Also, I've been coughing a lot, so forgive me. <coughs> Flemmy wet cough. I'm sure it's nothing. What could it be? Oh, yeah. What could it be? <laughs> <laughs> no one's wearing masks anymore. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. And today, we're going to ruin something we love. And I think it's ruined just by admitting publicly how much we love it. I know. (laughs) We're not even supposed to admit that we love it. I know. But we are. We're going to ruin a classic, Gone with the Wind. And we're doing it as the beginning of a series that we announced like over a year I ago know. and then never we're did so, called, called Problematic Faves, where we are looking at our faves that are problematic and then we'll look at your faves that are problematic. But we're going to start with us. That's our little payment. <laughs> So this is great. We we have been for months asking people to send us, tell us about their problematic faves, and we've gotten so many great ideas from listeners. Oh my stuff god! Stuff to talk about. But we're gonna kick this whole thing off just by talking about what we realized is our shared problematic fave, and it is the mother, oh the mother of, of all, all problematic <laughs> faves. It sure is. It Gone sure with is. the wind. But before we Gone get into wind. it, we gotta check in. Maya, mm-hmm. what's going on with you? How are you doing and what are you drinking? Well, I am drinking a a hard kombucha with the obnoxious name of Boochcraft, which I don't know. I kind of like that name. I am not into it. And uh, we are getting ready to go on our first trip since all of this. <laughs> You've been on trips. Uh, I mean, not like on a vacation. Okay. Where we like go away somewhere in this very like so wh- get on a plane. Where are you going to on a plane? We're going to London. Ooh. I have not been to London since I was 13. Oh my gosh. Th- wow. And we have tickets to see Man City play Liverpool <laughs> in Manchester. Wait. They're one point apart from each other on the table you're going to london and you're gonna drive get up on to a Manchester, train take the yeah. train up to manchester you know i did my study abroad year my my junior year in england and th- it just makes me think of how like to english people like going from london up to manchester or even more further north i was in leeds they act like it's like like a whole thing and i'm like you guys i'm from california i go, i go that far for a taco <laughs> Like any day. It's not even a trip. What are you talking about? It's an hour and a half. That's 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 nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. Come move to LA. That's mm-hmm. yeah. So so we're going uh to London and seeing soccer and also just uh seeing art and history stuff. And I'm really Oh, that's so really fun. Excited. You can go to you know, the Tower of London. We're gonna go to uh of course, the Tate Modern, which yes. I have to go to. The Tate. Uh, and then there's this museum that were there a couple of weird museums that we're going to. The one I'm really excited about, I, I really make my family suffer through my geeky history nerd shit. Mm-hmm. But there is a museum called the Museum of the Home, which is basically <laughs> just rooms that are like what a middle class living room is in like 1675 oh my and God, like 1827. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god, are you kidding me? I'm I love so that excited. Shit. That is so I great. I fucking love that shit. Yeah, that so is. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really mm-hmm. excited, but a lot has to happen before we go. And there's always a little bit of that like stress because I'm going with these children and it's going to be cold and rainy. And yeah, so well, it is London. But I'm still excited. I think you should be. That sounds like a really fun trip and you're going to do some cool stuff. Yes. So how are you doing and what are you drinking? Oh, I am doing just fine. I'm still having sort of this weird no mask culture shock. (laughs) Everywhere I go, suddenly, like, people aren't wearing masks. It's weird. My building, my apartment building is still requiring them in public areas. And the subway still requires them. But then a lot of businesses are like, yes. Some businesses are like, it's your choice. I tutor. So I go to people's apartment buildings and people aren't wearing masks there. It's like so weird and um, disconcerting. Yeah. And then like like the other day I went to get on the subway and I totally forgot to put on my mask. And I'm standing there on the platform and people are kind of giving me funny looks. And then I realized that guy was that asshole not wearing a mask. It's it's a lot to get used to, Maya. It's just a lot. <laughs> it's a lot and it's a lot. Uh, every, luckily, we keep extra masks in the car. There's always yeah. a car oh, yeah. mediating what we do. I mean, I keep them in my bags and my, my like jacket pockets. My coats. Yeah, yeah, everywhere there's masks, masks, backup masks just in case. That's yeah. what I would be nervous about is just forgetting one, just being like, oh, yeah. shit. Like, No, I always have one with me. That's not the problem. It's just a weird adjustment. I got so used to wearing them. And now it's like, oh, my God, your your mouth is visible to me. Then again, COVID rates have tripled in my neighborhood in the past oh, week or two. And, but it was they oh, were so shit. low. They were so low, Maya. We basically had no COVID. So now we have no COVID times three. So I guess it's okay. Okay. Um, I'm, okay. What am I drinking? I'm drinking, oh, I'm drinking a Mezcal Negroni because I'm, mm. I'm boring and tired and I reverted back to what is just my favorite instead of trying to do something creative or different. both of us are tired. I was like, yeah. I'm just going to get something I can grab from the fridge. Uh, so before we move into our topic, um, there's one update from mm. current events. The latest mm. in, has Me Too gone too far? Yeah. Because we all know yeah. that it's really, it's really difficult for mostly men, but accused people to be uh, put in this position where they're being tried in the court of public opinion without any due process. I mean, and, and just like ends their career. It ends their careers. It's so and, sad. It's really hard. Uh, so in that vein, uh, congratulations to them. Louis C.K. for his Grammy. <laughs> that he Also congratulations won. for Kanye for his Grammy that he won with Marilyn Manson as oh the guest God. artist on it. Yeah. Also, I mean, if we're going to think about it, because at some point, I feel like the Kanye thing happening at the same time as the Putin thing, <laughs> this sort of like toxic masculinity, like I'm going to have what I want or I'm going to destroy the whole world is really amazing parallel performance right now. Hmm. It's really, that is a connection I would not have made, but that's what I count on you for, Maya. There is this kind of like the just we're just going to do really horrible things and we're going to be allowed to do really, really horrible things. And we have to be allowed to. And if we can't, we're just going to blow up just everything. Yeah, that's continuing to happen. So those of us who are in favor of Me Too going too far, uh, I think we still have a ways to go. 
I wanted to, by the way, um, thank some of our patrons. I always want to thank all of our patrons, as I know you do as well, because uh, the members of our Patreon enable us to do what we do. Absolutely. And they also are great fun to talk to on our Discord chat. But I specifically want to call out three new, relatively new patrons, <laughs> because uh, I try to make a habit of thanking new patrons as they join, and I'm not great at staying on top of stuff like that. So I do want to say thank you to Allison Wiper, and to Eileen, and to L, the three not necessarily our three latest patrons, but the three who most recently answered my email that I sent to new patrons <laughs> saying, hey, thanks for joining. Can I thank you on the podcast? Because I don't want to mention people's names if they're not comfortable with that. So if you are already a patron and I haven't thanked you, or maybe you're not even aware of whether I have because you don't listen to every episode that that sounds implausible, but let's say you didn't. Check your messages on Patreon. Check your Patreon messages and please respond because I want to give credit to all our wonderful Patreon members. And uh, I wanted to thank one of our listeners, Kirsten Lund, who <laughs> she said on Instagram, like, oh, no, I like the power of the dog. And then she listened to the episode. I was like, did you ruin it? And she was like, Yes, you did. And that was a nutrient dense conversation. <laughs> so I just felt so great That's about that. Great that we, phrase. Oh my God. Conversation. We provide nutrient dense conversations. I also had this had lunch with a longtime listener, mm -hmm. a former student who has been keeping up with me through the sauce. And he was positing, and I'm I'm putting this out there for our listeners, that maybe our listeners are all just masochists because these are people who want to have the things that they love ruined. I mean, I thought I I just always took that for granted. I just <laughs> had to be the case. Like that's what we do. There's just an element of masochism. Because look, we don't only ruin things, but we analyze things and the way our minds work we are inevitably going to see multiple sides of things and so whatever your take on something is you're probably going to find us pulling it apart and telling you why it's wrong <laughs> and then telling you why we're also wrong and the point being I just think you kind of have to be a masochist to be into that a little bit. I think so which I think brings us to the incredible masochism that we're oh, about boy. to engage with which is uh which is our main topic so i think we uh we should get to it let's do it okay so all right we we are launching this problematic fave series we are going to be talking about specific television shows and movies and, and, books. and books and other things that people love, even though they know, we know, that they're problematic in some way. Sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. Or, or sometimes people just have a really hard time admitting they're problematic. 
because the love that they have for these texts is like yes. very deep. And so there's a lot of struggle around acknowledging right. that there are these things about it that and are problematic. sometimes there's struggle around <laughs> acknowledging that they like the thing, that the thing is a fake. That's absolutely true. Oh my God, that is absolutely true. Yeah. Where it's like, I know it's problematic, so I'm not going to admit that actually this is the thing. I really love really this. Like, yeah. You know, it gives yeah, me yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So... Before we jump into our problematic fave, Gone with the Wind, which, as I said earlier, yes. is like the mother of all problematic faves, <laughs> uh, and therefore I think a good place to start. But absolutely, I wanted to just briefly talk a little bit about this idea of pro the problematic fave right. and why we're interested in it. Yes. Uh, first of all, I kind of wanted to talk about what what this is not, <laughs> like what okay. what we're not trying to do. Because I, I think that often when people think about problematic works that are still beloved or that they still love, there's a tendency to go into certain directions like this work is really great, but you have to ignore these little, these parts of it, these incidental problematic areas that are not germane to the overall real true quality of the piece. Mm. Like, I think that happens a lot with, for example, Breakfast at Tiffany's, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is actually problematic mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. But, but the most yes. obvious yes. one being this like, horrible racist caricature of a, an Asian person in it, right? Yes. And I think the approach to that tends to sort of to be when that scene comes on to kind of cringe, but to basically ignore it. Yes. To cringe and kind of shut it out and like almost in your own mind edit it out of the mm -hmm, movie. Mm -hmm. But but also to make excuses, uh, excuses that don't make it okay, but that make it okay to ignore. Like, yes. it was the times. Yes. They, they oh, that's a big one. They didn't know yeah. better. Yeah. They didn't know, but that's how yeah. people thought back then. That's what people yes. thought was funny. And I think that's definitely not what we're doing here. We are not here to talk about why things are good despite being problematic or mm -mm. if you don't look at the problematic things, this is why they're good. Well, yeah, because I also think that if we're really going to get to the root of something, we have to see the ways in which those worldviews bring with them or have performances of real pleasure that in a lot of ways trained us. Yeah. So if we're going to actually get into it, yeah. we can't just be like, yeah, the yucky stuff over there. Right. It's not, <laughs> no, it's, we have it's to, not, it's we have problematic, to get into it. but it's my fave. Yeah, it's my problematic fave. There's a yes. difference there. Yes. Yes. And I also think it, it similarly, but not exactly the same thing. You get this a lot is um, the tendency to try to sort of look at the formal aspects of something and separate right. that from the content. Like That's right. Lenny Riefenstahl's films are beautiful. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, you, if you don't think about her being a Nazi, just formally, it's formally. It's just a shame that they were all about the Aryan race's superiority. As opposed to acknowledging that the formal mastery is a reflection of the worldview. Yes. So like, let's fucking you can't get into separate it. these two things. <laughs> you you can't cannot separate, separate the form and the content. You cannot. Uh, mm -hmm. You and. This is big in like film studies because of things like uh, um, Birth of a Nation. That's right. Where uh, it's tempting to talk about D.W. Griffith's directorial skill 
and the way he sort of invented the historical epic and invented that type of movie, the giant epic with a cast of thousands and the costumes and everything. Not to mention that he also had a very important hand in developing the system of editing that became Hollywood continuity editing that is still used today yes. in every Hollywood film yes. you've ever seen. Yes. So when handling that movie, you know, what do people do? You cannot look at the great artistry and, and formalistic uh, innovations that Griffiths was, was using without connecting them to the content that he was conveying, which if you're not familiar, listeners with Birth of a Nation, it's also a Civil War movie about the heroic South. And yeah, the, and, and it celebrates the, it's the heroic founding of the clan. Of the I mean, that's, that's it's what it is, um, literally what that movie yeah. is about. And incidentally, and related to other things we've talked about, uh, after that movie was released and it was very controversial, D.W. Griffiths became a very big free speech guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, of course. He was very upset with how he was canceled. And then his next movie, Broken Blossoms, mm -hmm. was being like, but I'm not racist because the bad guy is the white dad. But then in both Birth of a Nation and Broken Blossoms, he has like young little white girls being like sexually brutalized because oh, he got off on that. So that was like DW his thing movie. too. Every movie he did <laughs> Like ever he really loves white, little white girls little being- Little white girls in sexual peril. Absolutely. Yeah, That's his really, whole thing. Really big for him. Whole thing. So so you can't separate those no, things. You can't. you can't separate those things. You're like, oh, all of all of what we know of as cinema is based on these anxieties and Thank tropes. You. And we Thank have you. to like yeah. hold that with us, carry that with us in our purse as we like go exactly. see a movie. Exactly. Exactly. It's not DW Griffith's invented cross cutting between two different scenes to create tension. And it happened to be to, uh, <laughs> you know, in the service of a scene where a young white girl was going to get raped by a black guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, mulatto guy. He mulatto. really had no, this thing that, like yeah. his, his race mixing problem was also quite, was quite famous. It's an inherent part of it. And, and I think that uh, unpacking that, is very worthwhile. And that's part of, I think, Absolutely. what we're looking at here. When we talk about things being problematic, it's not like there are categories of content of works where like these are fine and these are problematic. Everything is problematic. Which I think maybe should have been our tagline for this show. Right, right. The sauce. Everything, Everything is problematic. problematic. <laughs> it kind of is. But I I do think that there is this way where we're often reading the sort of structural and political, uh, like the political structures that are always vibrating underneath art. Mm -hmm. and, and in order to do that, we have to also admit our own complicity in pleasure. And I feel like that's really like these things manipulate us into liking certain things, into desiring certain things. And we're not too good for that. Right. Like, right. We, like, but, but we are. I would also yes. say that I wouldn't put all the agency, uh, you know, in the camp of the, the work because, you know, 
as some post-structuralists would say, the text is created at the moment of consumption by the audience. The work yes. is just, yes. you know, it's just yes. celluloid. It's, it's light being projected on a screen. It doesn't have any meaning. It's your interaction with it, your interpretation and understanding of it that creates that meaning. And um, we are bringing to these works, uh, you know, generations worth of cultural memory and ideas that have been instilled in us. And one thing that I noticed with, um, with the text that we're about to watch, because it's on HBO Max, I watched it again mm. in preparation, and they now open it with an introduction yeah. from a Black Film Studies professor basically being like, this is the movie, this is why it's beloved, this was kind of fucked up. But I think there is this, this acknowledgement and... I think part of the reason we're doing this and part of the reason we wanted to go first is that we're not saying you're bad for liking it. Right. Of course not. We're saying like, it's complicated and let's get into it. Yes. Um, and I feel like that's, that's the pleasure of it. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about um, the Bill Cosby trauma porn uh W. Kamau Bell four-part documentary, We Need to Talk About Bill Cosby, that just came out, um, yeah, is that Kamau Bell is saying, I was a child of this man. I am a comic of a certain age, and this made me. I was made by this. And also, he was doing this at the same time, and also, he was doing this the whole time. And there's no separating these two things. Exactly. And I feel like that's one of the things that makes it actually a fascinating uh, uh, documentary and really, really well done is that it's actually like 100% dealing with that. Um, and the problem, I mean, it's essentially he's like problematic fave, Bill Cosby. Oh, well, I should watch that. All right. I'm a little nervous. I have to say I'm a little nervous. And that's part of this. So I'm going to be nervous. I, that's okay. I understand. Are you nervous because you're nervous about admitting to liking Gone with the Wind? Absolutely. That's, yep. that's mm -hmm. exactly what it is. All right. Let's talk about Gone with the Wind. It's hard to know where to start here. But I think we should start with right off the bat, let's get it out there. Why it's problematic. Just the, the kind of obvious stuff or the stuff that has been noted by many people. It's, it's racist as fuck. It's yeah. just <laughs> a totally fucking racist movie. I mean, it's like, like to I be mean, fair, even in 1939, that was well, well articulated. Like, And that's why that. it's so important that you can't just be like, oh, at the time. Right, right. Like at the time that Birth of a Nation came out. Like the NAACP was going to the president being like, why are you hosting screenings of this movie at the White House? Yeah. Like, and that was in 1916. So I think it's important to say that when these movies came out, there were always people being like, um, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't just go, oh, people just didn't care back then. Oh, yes, they did. Yeah. Oh, yes. Or, or, yeah, it was or racist as fuck. Or better or yeah, yeah, anything yeah. like that. No, and, and not only that, but... The, the very specific way in which it's racist, it's, mo it's more than just people didn't know better. It's a deliberate propaganda campaign. This movie, yes. this yes. well, really the book on which it's based and therefore the movie are part of this whole lost cause civil war narrative that 
Southern groups were deliberately pushing and trying to sell while they're putting on while they're putting up like Confederate monuments yes, in the 30s. Exactly. I mean, this is like part of that. So just a brief explanation of that. We've talked about it in the past. The lost cause narrative perpetuated by the what is it? The daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Primarily and, and other groups is this sort of reimagining of the Civil War. Uh, it's, it's revisionist history. Yes. Uh, in the worst sense. They wanted to, and I guess continue to want to, turn this myth into understood historical reality. That the Civil War was not about slavery. It was an invasion of the South by the North. Before the war, the South was an idyllic place where people were happy and Mm -hmm. uh, genteel. And yeah. life was yeah. romantic and lovely. Yeah. And slaves were happy. Enslaved exactly. people were happy. And uh, and and it was a system that worked for them. It worked for everyone. Why did the, it work for everybody? Why are people getting involved with their outsider mm-hmm. northern perspectives? Exactly. Uh, destroying yeah. the Yankees this, this came in, they, lost they, world. They burned down this beautiful... Plantation. and plantations yeah. and, and ruined it. And then they created this myth that it was about slavery when, in fact, it was not. It was a valiant, hence lost right. cause. It was a valiant right. fight for autonomy, states' rights, and blah, blah, blah. So you, you see all of that. Every every little thing we just said is all from on the first in this from the first movie. second the yeah. open like literally the opening title card is like back in the land of cotton when <laughs> things were so lovely and they're like yep. two enslaved boys ringing the bell and you introduce the O'Hara family where they manage their people so well right. and this, it's like all of that the shit enslaved people are well treated they're like family they're basically yeah. family yeah they're yeah. all happy yeah. to be there. Yeah. They like the world as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the The war is never about slavery or defending slavery. It it is a noble cause in the movie. And uh, after the war, the invading Yankees and the carpetbaggers, the northern carpetbaggers, are depicted as rapists. Literally, they yeah. they are they're rapists. They're rapacious. They're controlling. Greedy. They don't understand yeah. this world. Yeah, they don't care. They don't give a shit about the world. Right. They are just there to destroy. And mm-hmm. the KKK, though it's not explicitly named, the KKK is depicted as a necessary and noble response. I mean, to this and invasion. even though, again, it is a subtextual KKK, mm-hmm. it is the men doing what they have to do. Oh. To, to protect, protect the women. The white yeah, ladies. The white woman. Yeah. Yeah. And their absolutely. Virtue. Which uh, yeah. is a trope, yeah, yeah. a horribly racist trope that has been Which responsible for for lynching, lynching and the carceralization of yeah. uh, black men and yeah, yeah. for so centuries. It's super. I mean, it's so disgusting. It's really awful. It's, it's really so awful. disgusting. And the it's black so characters, bad. it's it's uh, people will point out that like for the time for 1939 for a mainstream hollywood white movie the, char- the the black characters are in a lot of ways more developed and have more 
agency and and interesting roles than would be typical but they well, are Hattie McDaniel who played Mammy is the first, first black woman black woman to win an to, Oscar uh, the first black person yeah, to yeah, win an Oscar that's right and she and at the same time that she was not allowed to attend the premiere of Gone with the Wind because right. it was at a whites only theater right. and at the Oscar ceremony she was at a segregated yeah. table She'd I mean the yeah. fucking back door or whatever yeah yeah Oh, indeed. But yes, the mammy, the the sort of Sambo type caricature, the, they're all present there. Um, Butterfly McQueen's character, um, what is her name? Prissy. Prissy, thank you. Prissy. But she's kind of like lazy, not She's kind very of a pick, pickaninny, yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. like a little older oh, than that, but God. kind of in that vein. So you have these... We- these age-old caricatures of black people that are part of America's like racist history, part of of racist propaganda. They're they're there. It's really horrible. Uh, the 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 Yankees are terrible because they promise the formerly enslaved people who are now freed they they promise them forty acres and a mule, which is a lie. They're not going right. to give them that. But also for like they're yeah they're just common. disrupting everything. Yeah. yeah. They're disruptive con men, yeah. It lionizes the heroic South. It depicts the antebellum South as this idyllic place that is forever destroyed and scarred right. by Yankee aggression. Like, it's, yeah. it's there. You're not going to deny it. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. This is terrible. So in addition to that, I mean, what more can we say about it? Well, before we get into what I think we have to get into next, which is why we like it anyway. <laughs> why oh, we love it anyway. Oh, God. Oh, but, God. But it's so humiliating. I think there's some interesting things going on in this film regarding the crafting of history and the use of spectacle in the crafting of historical memory. Okay. It, this movie didn't establish them because a lot of it was established during the silent era, as we mentioned, with Birth of a Nation and many other films. But the the period piece, the idea mm. of the epic period piece with certain visual elements that culturally are are conflated with historicity, okay. <laughs> historicalness okay. in, in the public imagination. Things like... Big old hoop skirts, you know? Yes. You, yes. You, oh, God. It just makes me think of, like, I'm like Bridgerton. Like, yeah. you could not have Bridgerton without Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I mean, quite possibly. Though, I don't want to give too much credit to Gone with the Wind. It was that sort of subgenre was well established at the time already. And there were many other films of that time and earlier that were already doing things like this. But, but Gone with the Wind just sort of stands out as this pinnacle of the form. Right. Um, right. And, you know, there's many famous little anecdotes that who knows if they're apocryphal or whatever, but it's like uh, one of the actresses 
playing, I don't know, one of Scarlet's sisters or whatever. They couldn't find petticoats for her. Her costume didn't have petticoats in whichever director, because there were 17 directors on this movie, but the <laughs> whichever director, Everidol Selznick or whoever was there at the time, he was like, oh, you, you need to have petticoats. And she was like, no, no one can see it anyway. I, I was just in the movie Jezebel and they, we didn't have yeah. petticoats in Jezebel at all. Don't worry about it. And, and he was like, but you'll know, my dear. You'll know it's not there. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that story is, I think, emblematic of the way that um, a certain kind of authenticity is associated with this film. And the more richly you can manifest that spectacle of petticoats and and frilly outfits. and, and the Not just uh, petticoats and frilly outfits, but also like the scenes in the war hospital. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's really key that one of the major scenes that they spend a lot of time on, because it's it's not about how um, how much time the event actually takes, but how much time the screenplay and the editor gives it, is sure. the, uh, the amputation that oh. happens without chloroform. Like, you didn't that. need that scene in that. I know, but I'm saying, like, that's so a scene where that's part of that, that's part of that spectacle of historicity, where right. it's like, we don't have chloro, like, we don't have all of this te medical technology. We take a big fucking saw and hack your leg off. Like, right. this is the era. Right. It's gritty. It's <laughs> right. like, no right. one associates this movie with gritty, but in a lot of ways, that's what it's conveying. And not right. just in that scene, but because the um, the charmed life of the antebellum South has been ripped away forcibly, they are now in this situation where shit is real. And yeah. that's what the major, like, middle part of the movie is. And, yeah. and so they are not shying away from, yeah, there was no chloroform. But there's also that incredibly famous shot of all of the Confederate soldiers lying dead or injured. Yes. And there's you yes. know, hundreds of them, and the camera tilts down to the yeah. tattered Confederate flag. Yeah. And the um, strains of the Dixie play. So so the, these are like huge scenes. Yeah, yeah. There's just something about the scale of everything. The famous anecdote about that scene is I can't, God, listeners, maybe you can tell me because I don't remember off the top of my head, but someone, fuck, I can't remember who, watching the movie famously said, well, if we'd had that many soldiers, we would have won the war. <laughs> <laughs> like the number, the sheer number of extras and legendarily, oh, something else big was shooting that day and there weren't enough extras to be all the soldiers. So they had dummies. And the, the extras who were playing injured soldiers had to manipulate the dummies next to them. They'd have like a stick where they would manipulate the arm of the dummy next to them to create the impression that there were more injured soldiers than there actually oh were. It's, it's legendary. For, and like, it's funny because when you watch it now by contemporary standards, it's not that many soldiers, but it's legendary for being so epically huge. So yes. many yes. soldiers. Yes. These, these yes. incredible vistas, hilltop scenes with the entire plantation in view. That yes. is the spectacle. 
yes. that is associated not only with this movie, but I think generally with the historical drama. Right. But they did it on a scale that was in its time and even today sort of remains like a big fucking deal. Because yeah. every every reality or every chapter of it is so perfectly rendered. There's like it's so rich pre-war design and detail. The wartime scene in Atlanta. Oh my god. Sherman's the March fucking post war. The, 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 the Yes. The, oh the, the dance scene. I love that the dance like they're raising money for the Confederate soldiers. For the cause. And it's like hundreds of performers i mean it's and they've it's, and you can see all their petticoats in that that's right their you get, skirts are going on it's like oh my god but I, I think that it's more than just observing these things there's a few things to note about all of this okay. and one is i think sort of like the the power of spectacle in in shaping ideas of history and historicity and that Number one, it makes it more plausible. I think it's more real history to people because there's more petticoats, you know? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. There's something about that. But also, it definitely took part in, I don't want to give too much credit to this specific movie f for this, but it took part in establishing these um, these genre standards or subgenre standards, if you will, so that what we consider to be a historical epic today is really doing the exact same things this movie did. Yes. And like we talked about with continuity editing and Griffiths and all of that, it matters that the hoop skirts and the corsets, you know, right. all of this, the, the sweeping the, vistas. The, right. The post, the, the way that the, uh, that the costumes tell a story from, uh, yes. From pre-war to war, to war with nothing, to post-war poverty, to post-war regaining of wealth. And the costumes in the second half of the movie are not the costumes from the first half of the no, movie. No, no. And there are just as many of them because it's a different lost, era. You have lost yeah. what was. They're wealthy again, but it is not the same. Right. All of that, like, it all resonates through more recent films. Yes, but it was also constructed, as with D.W. Griffith, in service of a racist lost cause myth-making. Exactly. That that was so important that mm -hmm. all those petticoats have to be there. Now, there's one thing that I want to get to before we move on, which is that you said it's about the Depression. Okay, I feel yeah. like I need to, like, <laughs> tell me, tell me about that. Well, this actually just occurred to me today. But I was thinking about the historical qualities of it. And how we look at it as a inaccurate or accurate, like it's a question of how accurately does it portray the era of history that it's meant to portray. Right. And there's a way in which you can say it's not about that. You can also step back from it and say this movie isn't about 1860 or 1859. It's about 1939. Right. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it because – the story is about people of wealth and privilege, people of means, who are forced to make do with nothing, who are, who are forced into a situation uh, where they have lost everything, materially speaking. The only thing they have is their internal resources. And it depicts how various characters deal with such a situation. 
it depicts, yeah, uh, 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 essentially aristocracy. Right. Um, being forced to scratch and scrape and not in a, not in a, um, eat the rich kind of way, but in a, in a very sympathetic way uh, of everyone being brought down to earth, even the black characters, because within the fictional world of the film, within the world that this film creates, the black characters had it great. The enslaved characters had it great before the war. They, right. they were happy. They were comfortable. And after the war, everyone is uncomfortable. And, you can imagine how that would resonate in a country just coming out of a depression, still dealing with a depression. I mean, I don't know if they thought of themselves even as yeah, coming out. Yeah, I don't out. think they thought of themselves as coming out. But I also feel like what you're saying is very interesting because it's also this time where we're coming out of the one moment where communism might have had a foothold in the United States. Mm. And so it's interesting not only that all of this, these funds and these petticoats were thrown in the service of white supremacy, but they were thrown in the service of elevating the aristocracy. Because there is, there is classism among the whites as well. And that's that is like oh, post civil war. Question. Post civil war, the uh, the former overseer becomes kind of gets in league with the carpetbaggers. Yeah. He ends up marrying the white trash slattery girl who he had had a child mm-hmm. with before the movie. Who's who? It's like it opens the movie. The fact that their overseer had like knocked up this white trash woman mm-hmm. and that the child died. Thank goodness and blah blah blah. <laughs> so like post war. All of a sudden, they have this money, and they are trash. And we, the viewer, are also supposed to see them as trash. And we are supposed to admire Scarlett for saying, like, you will never get Tara. Mm -hmm. Like, that. so it's not only all in the service. It's in the service of a wealth aristocracy, and it's in the service of white supremacy. I can't argue with that. So then this is a terrible, disgusting fucking document. Why do we love this movie? And all I could start with is how old were you when you first oh saw God, Gone with the Wind? I don't even Because I was a child. The first time I like I really watched it through, I was probably 13. So, okay. What, what is it about this movie that we love? Well, I think part of it is what we referred to just in the last section the grand historical sweep of it. Sure. And the gorgeous lushness of it is very hard to resist. Agreed. But I think that why this movie is so irresistible is Vivian fucking Lee. She's fucking amazing in it. She's amazing. Amazing in it. She is so Have you ever gorgeous and compelling. Like she, her as Scarlett O'Hara and and what she is, and that she's this woman who's the most beautiful woman in the room, but wants it her way, goddammit. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's all about Scarlett as a character. I think she Ugh. she is the heart and soul of it. Have you ever seen the like screen tests 
like Tallulah Bankhead. No. Oh my God. No. <laughs> There's there was a documentary. I don't even remember who made it, where I saw it, but like um, they showed some of the screen tests of other actresses because there was a search for Scarlet. It was not a oh given who was going to be in this role. And they screen tested everyone. And it was really a last minute thing that they happened to find Vivian Lee, um, who you can't imagine anyone else in the role. Well, also because you have to be so good to make all of the horrors of that movie disappear in the face of how compelling her Scarlett O'Hara is. Oh, absolutely. Like you are just rooting for her in this world from the beginning. Isn't that like the opening shot of the movie is her at the garden party surrounded by the dudes? That's not the opening shot because the opening shot is of her sort of flirting with these boys who she ends up seeing at the garden party and finding out that Ashley is going to get yeah, is engaged to and to and Helen. so she gets ready for the party and then she goes to the party yeah, but the, okay so but it's then, not at the garden party but she's like sitting on the porch or whatever and there's like right. eight different guys around her isn't that yeah, the opening? That's, <laughs> it's, it's the twins it's the twins it's just two guys okay all right. Maybe I should have rewatched it because in my memory, it's like she's like uh, like all well, the because guys. at the party, there's the famous scene of her being surrounded okay. by all so the I'm bows. conflating those two scenes because she gets to the party and in order to try to make herself desirable, she just flirts with all these men so that they're all sit. And she has the line where she's like, this is so much better than sitting at a table. You can only have two people sitting on either side of you at a table. <laughs> but she's just surrounded by all of these right, men. Right. And then it's the scene with Mammy where Mammy's telling her not to like eat the fried chicken at the cookout and and Scarlett's like, I'll eat what I fucking want, right? Yeah, well, so Mammy says, eat before you go so that while you're there, you eat like a bird. Right, right, because men don't want a woman who eats like a field hand. And Scarlett's like, no, I'm going to eat what I want because she thinks that the lover is, you know, the man that she wants uh says that he likes a woman with a healthy appetite. And Mammy says, yeah, well, I don't seem asking you to get married. <laughs> so she does eat something so that she won't eat like a field hand. At the, like, oh, does that happen? She does eat? Yeah, she does. But she's going to wear something that exposes her breath. Like she's, she wants to win at the game, but she's not going to play the rules of the game. Yeah. And then she meets Rhett Butler, by played by Clark Gable, who also... He's an outsider. He's a transgressor. He's been kicked out by his family. And it's like the erotics of these two people who don't want to play by the rules. Yeah, I, I really want to get into that. And I want to get into Rep Butler. But the thing about Scarlett, the thing that I'm getting at, what makes her so compelling, she's actually a very layered character. But she's so compelling to me personally um, because yes, she's like this privileged, pampered, wearing all lace kind of daughter of the aristocracy whose only concern is who sh she can get to marry her. And then when the shit hits the fan and the war happens, she does what the fuck she has to do. Yes. She delivers Melly's baby, which is yeah. a, like the movie lets you know is a giant feat. Yes. She, 
she gets sick Melly and the infant and the rest of their party to Tara on her fucking own. She, when they get there, she has the incredibly famous speech of I'll never go hungry again. She was this privileged pampered girl who could sort of make gestures at how she's going to reject the propriety rules about whether women should eat at the cookout or not. But then ultimately, Oh, she needs to attract a man. But when the shit hits the fan, she's like, I'm going to farm this fucking farm. Yeah. I'm going to tell everyone what to do. Yeah. I'm going to make people fucking work. Yeah. If I have to marry my sister's boyfriend (laughs) because he has money, I'll fucking do it. And that's like, I'm gonna- like that whole fucking scene with Kennedy. She sees that Kennedy's doing well. He's got some dough. She doesn't have shit. She makes a dress out of the drapes because she's fucking resourceful. And because she can pull it off. Because it doesn't matter if right. she's wearing drapes or whatever. She's Scarlett O'Hara. And she come- and she flirts with him. <laughs> you mind if I put my hand in your pocket? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I fucking love that. Because she knows exactly what the fuck she's doing. She is like... My sister is not going to properly exploit this situation. Yes. I need to marry this guy and I don't give a shit. And and I can do it because I'm fucking Scarlett O'Hare. She's beautiful. She's more beautiful than any other woman. She's desired. She knows how to play it with everyone except Rhett, who always sees through her. But we'll get into that in a second. Um, the The line that embodies her as a character, she says it a couple of times in the movie, which is, I won't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. Like when the Yankee soldier comes marauding, ready to rob and rape her and her sisters, and she fucking shoots him dead. And she's like, well, I guess I've done murder. I won't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's the thing, because she's saying, if I think about it, it's going to stop me from doing what needs to be done. Exactly. So I'm going to do what needs to be done and I'll deal with the the uh, the moral right, and uh, emotional issues of and, this. Yeah, and deal- con- I'm going to deal with the consequences of that later. Right. Always but later. That's, but that's why her foil is Melanie, right? Yes. Melanie is the one who is too fucking weak. Without Scarlett, Melanie's dead in the first fucking act of this movie. But what? Melanie knows it, and Melanie yeah. admires her, and well, that's the and that's what makes them such a great sort not of to partnership shit on Melanie, throughout. She's actually a really great fucking character. She's an amazing <laughs> char- character. So unlike Scarlett's sisters, who are like super right. pissed about it, and like she's making me right. work, and I Why hate is she it. Such a bitch? Like Melanie is like, oh no, Scarlett has some shit that I do not have, yeah, and I am exactly, I, and I don't care that she wants to fuck my husband. Right. I like admire this woman. And I am way bigger than any, and I'm not gonna like because Melly doesn't play by the rules either. In her like, way, right? When, in her way, she like plays when by the, the whore, bigger rules, she, she plays play, yes, by that's right. like the you know it's kind of like that old uh, uh, Hebrew national <laughs> hot dog commercial where they're like we answer to a higher power. Because I yeah, thought it was a good ad yeah, campaign, but yeah, the point is yeah. for for Melanie, it's like when the when the sex worker when the yeah. Town whore is Bell Watling. Watling thank yeah. you. Is is collecting money for the Confederate cause. Um Scarlet's like, oh, I would never. But Melly will talk to her. 
and Melly give her doesn't money. just talk to her. Melly goes to her. Yeah. Melly like right. goes to her to thank her and is like, I would be honored to talk to you whenever. Right. Which is like because so much bigger. She's of a, a yeah. bigger person and she sees That's the bigger right. picture and she's operating on the higher principle. Scarlet is never operating on a higher principle. But Scarlet is able to do the shit that Melly could never do. That's right. Because she has That's strength. Right. And and she has that ability to set aside, I, I won't think about that today. Like, I am not going to get caught up in thinking about the implications of this morally and personally and emotionally. I, I can't afford that. I got to keep you fucking people alive. Yeah, that's right. So there's her... She's this outsider. She will transgress to survive. She will do what needs to be done. She'll make it happen. And even if it's totally, because it always is very selfish, but she's going to get the shit done. Yes. There's absolutely an element of selfishness, but her selfishness is part of her strength. Absolutely. Melanie is the selfless one. And she's in many ways weak. Like she, in many ways, yes. she's stronger than Scarlet. But well, more but that's ways. but that's how you're sort of like that's the thing that we're watching that we're admiring. Right, it's like right. these two women who have these very different strengths and very different weaknesses. But what's the same about both of them is that they're not quite following the rules of this world they're in. Right. Right. And and they're and at like in the dance, in that first dance, when they're gonna do that thing where people have to like buy a dance mm-hmm. and all the older women are like, That is so shocking and totally like Right, right, right. You know, and, and they said, Well, Melanie said it was okay. Well, if Melanie says it's okay, it's okay. Right, but Melanie is is respected as as this moral authority by the community. That's right. That's right. And she, but that, but okay. So, so, so before we get too into Melanie, because Melanie is great, but she's not the reason that we love this movie. The reason we love it is because Vivian Lee plays Scarlett O'Hara with all of her manipulativeness, strength, ability to put aside the moral consequences to do what needs to be done, mm-hmm. uh, her gorgeousness, her ability to change on a dime, her ability to like shift behavior. For what she needs and be a monster when she needs to be and just be a coquette when she needs to be absolutely and then she meets her match in Rhett Butler in Rhett Butler Rhett fucking Clark Butler. Gable yeah. Rhett fucking Butler that's why we love this movie I mean let's be real <laughs> that is a major part of why I love this movie because Rhett Butler is basically like You've never been fucked properly, that's, and I'm going to fuck you properly. That is a perfect summation of Red Butler. What, what else do any of us want in this world? You could use a good kiss, he does say. Yeah. But also, he says he also says, you've been with a boy and, a, and an old man. How about somebody the right age with a way with women? Yeah. Like, I'm going to, you don't even know what I'm going to do. Okay. So, Red Butler. All right, where, where do we start with this character? This character type is very appealing to me <laughs> so 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 it, he's the rogue with the heart of gold yes he lives outside the norms of society but he gets away with it because he's so well respected and he's well respected because he's honest and he, about who he is. He's honest about who he is and he's He's just, not a hypocrite. He's not he's, a hypocrite. He's, he he sees right through the frivolity and hypocrisy 
of society and he's got no fucking time for it. He's not because he's too busy winning. Yeah. But at the same time, he he lives by his code. He is an yes. honest person. He's honest about who he is. He deals honestly with other people. And he is fundamentally good and moral. Like yes. underneath it all, he will always do the right thing. And he's also super smart and resourceful and yes. courageous. So yes. he he doesn't seek out any kind of glory for shit like that. He's not interested in that stuff. But because he does have those qualities, he's respected by the most respectable people in town, even though he spends all his time playing poker at the town brothel. Well, but also because when it's time for him to get the respect because now he has a child and he wants her to be, you know, Mm -hmm. he will do he also like scarlet will do what needs to be done and he sees that in her before she knows that about herself and that's also very sexy he doesn't care about all of her like her her southern bell shit he sees her and in the instant he goes he sees right through her and he's like you are a selfish cunt who does what needs to be done. And you know what? I like that in a woman. Exactly. Come on. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> it's, you, yeah. are, you are learning so much about me and Rebecca right now. I know. <laughs> like, this is like exactly what we want in a man. Like we don't care about how you win in terms of all of the like rules of femininity. Fuck that. You are a selfish bitch and I want to fuck your brains out. Come on. Yeah. That, that is that all is... we want. That's it. it. It's really great. And also when he buys her all those clothes. <laughs> no, but also my favorite thing about that is he buys her all those clothes and he wants to get something for Mammy. And she says that, you know, Mammy says that they're just mules in horses harness, that they're just like Mammy's basically like you're just white trash. And he's like, that is awesome. That's so oh, true. No, but that's, like he loves that's it. An essential, he loves it. That's an essential part of him as a character is like he appreciates the deeply true folk wisdom that mammy yes. has to offer yes and that's and, and he appreciates bell watling he doesn't give a shit about your status in society he sees right through all of that and cares about what really matters that's right that's right so i think that when we see this and i you know i am thinking about like Bridgerton and the weird constant rewriting of Pride and Prejudice, the crotchety guy who, you know, the sort of Beatrice and Benedict, there is this sort of ongoing trope of like, they disagree, they disagree, they disagree, but it's really hot. Okay. So like, I think that that is something that is why we love this movie. Oh, it's like, it's this relationship between these two transgressors. That's what we love. I am inclined to recall a production of Taming of the Shrew that you did, that you directed and you told me about, and I never saw it, but you wanted to highlight Catherine and Petruchio as these like fiery, passionate people who were finding their like. Well, they were fiery, passionate people, neither of whom fit into their world. And it's actually, I'm going (laughs) to put this out, but I have this on my desk. (gasps) Oh, look at that. It's a poster. Is that from your production? 
that's from my production. What a great poster. It was a great Taming poster. Of the Shrew. So what we did with Taming of the Shrew is that usually with Taming of the Shrew, either he has tamed her or she tricks him into thinking he has tamed. She but, sort of acts tamed, but we are to understand it's not But we are real. to understand. But the way that I staged it is that the performance of her taming is a game that they create together for this world that she's from. Yes. It is, they, they, they are both social outsiders who figure out how to tap dance and then go off and create their own world together. And that's totally what is delicious about Gone with the Wind. And that's why you get frustrated with Scarlet because she does not know what she has right. once she has him. That's the frustration of the film. But yeah, but, so, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was about to get into the, the, the problematicness of like how this desire for this particular kind of erotic dynamic is deeply fucked up. So we have this horrible historical context, this lost cause myth-making, but there's this very exciting eroticism of these transgressors who see each other and find each other, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the, but this is why I like it. And what I'm here to say is that like, that's super fucked up because it is the root of white womanhood. She wins in all the way that patriarchy wants her to. She's beautiful. She's coquettish. She's just rebellious enough that we feel like she's fighting it. But at the end of the day, she is the worst of white women. She is like Karen all the way. She's ever, and like we are, we have been raised to associate this certain kind of erotic excitement with this kind of white womanness that's just awful. I think that's a really good point. Especially when you look at things like Scarlett's reaction to Belle Watling and a few other moments in the film where you're reminded, um, yeah, that she's a Karen. Yeah. And so there's this way that she is this kind of fantasy character of this woman who gets to be the richest and the beautifulest and the most uh, served mm -hmm. and is still an outsider. This fantasy that you can be both at once and the erotics mm -hmm. of being a little bit of a transgressor while still absolutely upholding all the structures so I just, is I'm white womanhood disagree. in a nutshell. Okay, I... I hear what you're saying and I just I slightly disagree with this because I think that the ways in which Scarlett is a transgressor become the very reasons why she's able to survive and protect others during and after the war when, when people would fucking die like Melanie has her baby they get Melanie and the baby to Tara they, they survive marauding Yankees who are there to pillage and rape because of Scarlet. They get that fucking farm back up and running and they survive because of Scarlet. They, she marries Kennedy and it's like, that's what she has. That's the resource she has available to her is her eyelashes that she can bat and she does it. And 
she does it to survive. And so I hear what you're saying about this, this character type who is like, oh, I, I'm going to eat the chicken at the barbecue. I don't care. But like, ultimately she's everything patriarchy wants her to be. But I think that the appeal of the movie lies in the understanding that underneath that she's more and she is different. And okay, but mm-hmm. this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying in the same way that we're like the big splashy historical epic in the service of like, what is this story in the service of? And what mm. is this idea of this kind of erotic relationship that ends up being why we get suckered into it? Right. Right. What is that in the service of? And what does that say about our desires and how those desires are braided up in this kind of white womanness? Yeah. The white woman is a very interesting and fucked up character in our society. Uh, in There was that amazing history book that came out a few years ago called They Were Her Property, which is this beautiful history book by Professor Stephanie Jones Rogers at Berkeley, which in which she writes about how the idea of white women during slavery is that they didn't get their hands dirty with all of that business. Right. That was men's business. They couldn't own property. So like white women were like, they were kind of innocent of it. And she writes this extraordinary history book about how they were absolutely not innocent of any of this shit. And she goes through contracts Mm -hmm. and wills and newspaper articles. I mean, God, the amount of research that woman did to make this sparkling book about how white women were active participants in the slave trade. Yes. Extraordinary fucking book. And I feel like the white woman, the way that she is not shown to be complicit of this evil system, this kind of performance of affect so that she doesn't have to take responsibility, this way that she's just like, I don't know what I want. I am an appendage. I am a piece of property myself, but she really isn't. That bizarre in-between space that that holds, that allows so many white women, that I think occupies a lot of like eroticism around white womanhood in cinema. Gone with the Wind is like the seed of that. Uh, so, okay, I, I think that's really true of a lot of the ways we conceive of white womanhood. I'm asking how much that is actually depicted in Gone with the Wind. Because Scarlet isn't that sort of passive, uninvolved. The whole thing about her is that she gets her hands dirty, literally and figuratively. And that's rule-breaking. It's transgressive, but it's necessary, and it's how she survives. So I feel like the movie is directly kind of subverting that idea of white femininity. At the same time... While reinscribing it so yeah, totally, but th- that's at the, the same thing, time, like- At the same time, the major, like, through line of the entire movie, the actual plot of the movie, is that she believes herself to be in love with Ashley when... We know, and Rhett Butler knows, 
she is not. And Melanie knows. And Melanie knows, and exactly. And, and, and so what do we make of this depiction of this sort of ideal of femininity? She's not an ideal. We, the movie doesn't make any bones about that. That We're not looking at her as some ideal of perfection, but we're looking at her as, as an ideal of interestingness. <laughs> sort of like, Melanie well, is your ideal of perfection. Melanie's fucking boring. Well, but that's the thing is that it's this ideal of interestingness that still keeps you in a good box. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. It's like this ideal of of interestingness where you feel like she's breaking the rules, but she's not. And the thing that she really wants is the rules. The thing that she uh. really wants is Ashley. Yeah, that's fair. Like the thing that she really wants couldn't be more standard, right? Yeah. That's a thing that she thinks she wants. But what she really wants, here's where it actually is is also very problematic. The thing that she wants is for Kennedy's Lumber Company to take advantage of all of the building going on in Atlanta right now and all of this fine Georgia pine growing everywhere. And Kennedy just doesn't have the wherewithal to turn his business into what it could be. So Scarlett takes the fucking reins figuratively and then takes the reins literally. She does this transgression of societal norms by driving her own carriage she's basically yeah. running the lumber company post-war and then she's like fuck it she's driving her own carriage and what happens she gets attacked by carpet bagger vagrants in, in implicit you know rape attack scene right mm-hmm. leading to the men having to form the kkk to defend her <laughs> yes but and her husband getting killed and then she gets to yeah yeah and the husband getting killed which we understand to be bad even though it's good because now she's free to be with red yeah it's very much like she has to be punished for moving beyond her bounds like we're supposed to love her for having been able to disregard the constraints of societal expectations around femininity when necessary like at first as a youth before the war, in the idyllic times, she does it because she's spoiled and doesn't give a shit. But then during the war, she does it because she's fucking Scarlett O'Hara and it's necessary. And even Melly is like, no, it's good. But then the war's over and the dark times after the war are over and things are okay again. But she can't go back. The, f- the further Scarlett goes toward genuine independence and sort of starting to occupy what would be considered a masculine role in her society. As she goes in that direction, she gets cut down. And not only is it bad for her, but it's bad for everyone around her. And she's forced to face the consequences of her own selfishness in doing this. And she is then in this last segment of the movie, in the situation of being given everything she should want. She should, not necessarily that society has told her to want, but literally everything she actually should want, right? 
You're married to Rhett Butler. This is what we have wanted for you this whole time. And and you're wealthy. Like, go with it. And she can't. She can't make that work. She has to persist in this weird pursuing Ashley controlling him yeah giving him a job because he's too kind of fucking impotent to come up with his own shit he's so So she just like he's a pathetic character yeah but that's part of it is that you're like oh he's there's no comparison there's like a lot of romantic films and romantic comedies will give you uh uh the the alternative to the hero and sometimes they're just despicable but sometimes there's like in an ideal situation a good movie they're they're compelling and you're kind right. of like oh i kind of like this guy for various reasons but um not ashley wilkes he he's there's nothing about him that you as a viewer can see what scarlet sees in him and, and yeah. of course, and he's perfect with Melly. They're just like, yeah. just right for each yeah. other. They're happy together. They're uh, they vibe. And so you're like, what does Scarlett want here except to to see the world burn? Right? Yeah. She she wants to fuck up the two best people, but she's given everything good despite herself, and she's got to burn that shit down. Why? It's not even clear why. But that scene where she shows up, where Rhett makes her show up at the party after she oh, gets yeah. caught sort of canoodling with with Ashley, and he makes her put on her sluttiest red dress, and the fucking door opens, and it's and, and it's Vivian Lee with, like, the one eyebrow arched, <laughs> looking like, it's like the most fucking iconic scene. But why do I love that scene so much? Scarlett doesn't want to go. She's being a fucking baby about it. She's like, I got caught canoodling. It's embarrassing. It's going to ruin my reputation. I'm going to hide in bed and pretend I'm having my monthly thing, whatever. But Rhett makes her go for Bonnie's sake because, you know, to preserve her reputation. And I don't know what tell you tell me why that scene where they open the door and Scarlett's standing there with the eyebrow arched in the red slinky dress like why that's so powerful to me because it's the scene where she is what she is yes in front of all of these people and in front of all of their bullshit society bullshit and she's forced to be who she is yes. in front of those people. And she can't play that that in-between role anymore, that dance that she's been doing. She has to go there and be the big slut that she is in front of these people. Yeah. But and then she, she has saved. To, she has to because Rhett forces her, right? Yeah. Rhett is the one who like is real about what like yeah, we're but, not gentlemen, like right, we're right. bad, we're transgressors, we're outsiders, we're the same. We're the same. Yeah, but Scarlet can never face that until the very, very end, right? That's right. the fun of the movie is that only in the last moment is she like, oh shit, it was Rhett all along. Spoiler alert. <laughs> for uh, how, how fucking old is this movie 80 years old <laughs> anyway um my point is 
that to the very end, she doesn't know herself and can't know herself. And I feel like to me, that's the crux of the, the white womanhood problem in the movie. Is that she gets to avoid knowing herself. And avoid responsibility. Always. And avoid responsibility for not knowing herself but it's there okay. You go. But, there we go. But it's okay because a white man is there to tell her who she is. Right. And to force That's her right. to Oh my god, we got there. Oh. <laughs> and you know what it is? And this is the part of it. This is the part of it. I'm going to be the white woman and avoid responsibility until the white man makes me take responsibility and like be who I am. And so I don't have to ultimately take responsibility unless I'm trying to survive because I'm going to always desire and have erotic desire for the white man who's going to tell me what to do. Yes. We braid up desire with the white man who tells me what to do. Like that's what's braided up in this movie is like, I want my Rhett Butler to tell me what to, to do me what, so yeah. I don't have to think to about it what so I, I can, think about, yeah, it I can think about it tomorrow. Exactly. And it braids up the like, I avoid responsibility with erotic design. Yeah. And that is why it is fucked. That is why the part that we love about it that trained us as young women to like go, ooh, is fucked up. We got there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, listeners, do you hate us now? <laughs> do you know too much about us now? Listeners, we know Gone with the Wind is terrible in so many ways. It just it's horrible. really should never have been made. <laughs> but if you have thoughts about it, we would like to hear them, especially if you have thoughts about why it's great and um, is actually extremely entertaining and pleasurable, or thoughts about problems it has that maybe we didn't even think to mention or thoughts about how now you just feel like god i can't listen to you guys anymore because you've revealed <laughs> too be, much about don't yourself be you have to own your problematic faves i feel like that's an important all right. theme for us all to right. reiterate oh <laughs> throughout this series all right i'm owning own it i'm owning it i'm owning faves. it but what if we get canceled? You know what? We're not popular enough to get it's canceled. It's not about, did Scarlett care about getting canceled? You can <laughs> just. Kind of. I mean, she kind, kind of did. Of. That's the thing. Kind of. Like she That's the thing did. she cares about being canceled. Yes, yeah, she did. Like, it she sort did. of depended mm -hmm. on this. It was situationally mm -hmm. dependent in a lot of ways. Well, <laughs> listeners, if you have things to say, join our Patreon join our patreon and you can join the conversation on the sauce speakeasy and you can tell us about your problematic faves that we have to yes. ruin for you there are two there are two that i'm really call me by your name which guy says that he has to be back for and big trouble in little china i can't wait to do big trouble in little china because oh, that is like oh. one of my faves because that's also two different people request yeah, that one yeah yeah. I mean, that's yeah. it's a good example of a problematic fave that I rewatched in order to talk about. I did too. I did too. But we are going to get into that. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. Listen, uh, you can also email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the socials like Instagram and, 
And the Twitter is at Sauce Podcast. You can find me at Maya Garance anywhere you are looking for Maya Garances. You can find me, Rebecca Cohen, as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. Maybe it's just that problematic that we're, you know, doing a show about problematic faves when refugee children are like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the Ukraine right now. Life. Life is a, is a problematic fave. <laughs> Reality is my problematic fave. <laughs> well, listeners, fellow masochists, please be in touch and we will see you next week. Adios, Abibas. Bye.